We're just going to do an episode on Andrew's jokes. Uh, and that's, that's an episode that then Molly can edit down to zero. We'll record <laughs> the whole thing, and she'll take out all the bad parts. And we'll just say, sorry, folks, we skipped this one. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. I am Andrew Seligson, president of Campus Compact, and I am joined here in Boston by my colleague Marisol Morales. Hello, Marisol. Hi, Andrew. Hi, everyone out in Compact Nation. Mm -hmm. Nice to be back. And we are joined from the great state of Iowa by Emily Shields. Hello, Emily. Hi. Are, are we great? You know... Uh I think so. Okay. But I question it sometimes. I was worried that I'd made some terrible mistake. No, Uh, we're great. We're great. Uh, How how are you guys doing? Pretty good. It it is my daughter's fourth birthday today. Oh, happy birthday to the baby. Yeah. And I think we can mention in that context that our listeners, (laughs) perhaps unbeknownst to them, were introduced (laughs) to your daughter Yes, we sort of didn't explain it at all, but one of our new segments, uh, we're calling What Does That Mean?, where we're talking about the language we use in this work and explaining it. And I got a little clip of my daughter saying, what does that mean? Mostly because I think her voice is cute, but also because that's kind of the context of how I'm trying to think about it. She's turning four today. And so if you think about how would you explain some of these words we use to a little child it's a pretty big challenge to do that. So, so that's, that's my challenge to you. When we talk about those words, could you explain it to my four-year-old? And I'll tell you, she is tough. So you're not, just to be clear, you're not saying that our audience is at the level of four-year-olds. You're just saying that we'd love it if our audience. I mean, I'm not not saying that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm saying that should be a good test of whether we're using plain language that can be understood outside of academia. There we go. Uh, and how are you doing, Marisol? I'm doing good. Not too happy that fall has arrived, but uh, and that the warm weather is gone. But I'll deal with it. I haven't had a cold winter in five years, so embracing myself. Getting ready for Chicago. Yeah, we've had uh, some legitimate crispness in the air here in Boston. And uh, is it like that in the Midwest? Oh yeah, and I'm so ready for it. I'm I'm ready for what what I call the the fall nip. You know that nip in the air. I don't like it after that because I don't like winter. But this, I'm ready for this. We do have a divide in our office because we've gotten a we've uh, gotten a couple people to move here from the southern part of the United States. We've got a previous Florida resident and a brand new Vista leader who moved here from Arizona. Poor babies. But then my other, my assistant director loves to ski. So basically we just fight about snow and staff meetings. It's great. Yeah, I've been watching weather very carefully. So this weekend, uh, my partner in life and I and our cycling pals are uh, doing what we do once every year, which is doing this big two-day MS fundraising ride. We ride about 175 miles over two days. It is very, very nice when the weather is pretty cool when that uh-huh. happens. And it's it's this year we're doing it down in South Jersey where we often do it. And it's 
it's going to peak at about 71, 72. That's totally fine because we start very early in the morning. That's good for cycling. That's really good. So I've been looking for last year. It was like up in the high 80s and uh, 100 miles in like 85 degrees. That's, yeah, that gets a little old. So looking forward to having some cooler temperatures. All right, so we are in one of our episodes that is several segments, each one with kind of its own topic. Emily, you want to take us into the first one? Yeah, so just to kind of recap, because we've only done one of these, what we're trying to do is have a couple of segments that help us kind of dive into different elements of our work. So the first one is called... What does that mean? So we're going to... Today, talk about a word that gets tossed around a lot in higher ed, which is non-traditional or non-traditional student or even non-trad if you're hip and cool. No, Marisol's giving me a face. I would not associate it with hip and cool, just to be clear about that. (laughs) That may have been sarcastic, but it's a thing that people say. And I wanted to just start, so I I guess if we're going to define non-traditional, we have to define traditional, right? So I think a lot of what people mean by traditional college student would be what? A person whose parents went to college, a person who is starting college right after high school at 18 years old, um, those kinds of things. I was looking at some stats yesterday um, because... I guess one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this word is because I think we should do away with it. (laughs) Um, Since 1990, more than 40% of college students have been over 25 years old. That figure has hovered over 40% since then. 26% of college kids, kids, again, not great language, have their own kids, our parents. Um, And that's increased 30% since 2004. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later. 15% of students, uh, only 15% of student veterans are that traditional age. Most student veterans are older. And 50% of college students are first generation, meaning their parents didn't go to college. Um, And that's 30% of of freshmen. So even if they are of traditional age, I guess you would say. So basically, my point is traditional doesn't mean what it used to. So why are we saying non-traditional? Yeah, you know, one of the things I think this term is like a lot of terms in that there's a way it gets used in ordinary language. And then there's a formal definition that's used for certain kinds of official purposes. So the National Center for Education Statistics defines the term non-traditional students. There are seven characteristics. If you have any one of those, you count as non-traditional. And it's things like being over 25, supporting somebody financially other than a spouse, um, you know, and, and a set of other things that um, kind of relate to being either a little bit older or more independent financially. It doesn't, for example, include anything about first generation status. Um, but it's now the case that according to the formal definition, and this is exactly consistent with what you're saying, Emily, 75% of college students in the United States are non-traditional under the definition. And I don't think it's a bad thing to have that called out in a clear way. In other words, saying whatever traditionally you thought your students were, it's just not who your students are anymore. And so I think that there's still value in having a distinction as long as we understand that 
there's nothing counter normative about these non-traditional students. It is it is a change over time. Fifty years ago, the student population looked very different in these ways. Many more students would have been traditional. The number's been on the rise for about the last thirty years. Yeah, I don't think I have a problem with the use of non-traditional, but I think in the ways that colleges and universities look at their work, even if they do have more students over the age of 25 who have students that are veterans and so forth, they still plan everything around traditional age students or what they consider traditional. And so if colleges and universities are thinking about their student body, then really, how do you plan for that student body that you actually have, not the one that you had 25 years ago? Right. But that's where I think the language actually is a problem, because I think that it reinforces the mindset that 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 traditional students are who college is really for and built around. Because I don't know that your average, you know, voter or that kind of thing knows some of the things we just said about how many college students today don't fit that typical mold. Using different language could eventually result in different policy decisions um, and things like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, yes, I, like with a lot of things, a lot of it depends on who you're talking to, what you're talking about, what your purposes are. I think there's one challenge, which is the, the one Marty Sol was just pointing to, which is like, for whom are you building programming, right? So, and I think in the work that we talk about, civic and community engagement, the question of whether you are thinking about ways of ensuring that every student has an opportunity for the benefits of experiential community-engaged learning, recognizing that many students have to take care of families, have to work lots of hours. Uh, that's one kind of set of issues. And in that ways, I think it's useful for people to understand, to be pushed to recognize that these may not be the students that you you experienced when you were an undergraduate in many cases for professionals in the field or uh, the students that your university was serving 40 years ago, et cetera. And so I think in, in some ways, non-traditional has some value of that, like reminding people of change that they need to keep in mind. But I totally agree with you, Emily. I think having better descriptors of what is our student body like? And I think one of the challenges there is students are, are non-traditional in lots of different ways. And it's not as if there's one category that is non-traditional who all kind of need the same things or right. should be supported in the same ways. And so in the public discourse where people aren't going to pay that much attention, having some quick ways to capture that, that reminds people, right, that when you're talking about the university, public universities in your state, for example, you're talking about institutions that are educating all kinds of people who are important to your communities and, and your places and whatever. Yeah, and I think the other thing to remember is oftentimes, or in the past, like those programs that were developed for non-traditional students were actually spaces of innovation, right? Being able to do competency-based learning, being able to have a space that wasn't restrained by sort of the tradition of the university and able to really um, be mindful of accommodating the needs of, of students in ways that weren't creating obstacles in terms of implementation. And so I guess in the meantime, you know, where's that conversation taking place? How are policymakers and university administrators and faculty thinking really about how our student body has changed, how we have to meet their needs in a variety of different ways, whether they're traditional 
or, or non-traditional, because even traditional age students uh, now are sort of coming upon different obstacles, whether it's, you know, working two jobs, helping to support their family, um, those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for me too, I think part of it is, and I think this is especially important to the public narrative about this, that, you know, there's obviously a whole narrative about the coddled college student, right? And that whole narrative assumes a traditional four years, you know, whatever. I mean, it's straight out of high school, et cetera, four-year path to graduation. The, the Many of the same people who are complaining about the coddling of college students are also complaining, quite rightly, about institutions that are insufficiently responsive, for example, to the needs of, of veterans and to the needs of other adult learners. So you can call, like, looking out for people's interests coddling, uh, or you can say we ought to have institutions that look out for the interests of our students, and how, how do we do that given who they really are? Well, so that is a good segue to our next segment, I would say. So the next segment is where we're kind of looking at new research reports, that kind of thing related to the field, um, and basically reading them so you don't have to. So two recent reports came out about free college. So this is another one where decoding, I think, is important because there are several programs um, of late that have been termed free college. As the reports illuminated, in most cases, what they mean is uh, tuition free, specifically, and making sure tuition costs are covered. Um, so the reports were from, I don't remember where the reports were. The Institute of Higher Education Policy. And the Education Trust. Thanks, team. So they looked at, uh, one looked specifically at free college programs in New York and Tennessee, and another did a strong analysis of a whole bunch of free college programs from across the country. Um, they were fairly critical of those programs in terms of their ability to impact low-income students' ability to go to and complete college, partially because I think, again, what's being called free college is only covering tuition and a statistic that Again, just to go back to how the importance of statistics and how they can change your mindset, tuition is only 20% of the cost of going to college. 80% is being able to support yourself while you go to school, books, fees, all those different costs. So most free college programs focused only on tuition are just not addressing that completely, which to me speaks to this idea, if we're thinking about traditional college students, we think they have other support. We think they can live with family or they can be supported by their parents. So just tuition would help them. But clearly that's not the case. One of the, I mean, I think, so the, the reports criticize these programs in a couple different ways. One is, you know, these programs in most states where these these have emerged, Tennessee, New York, et cetera, are what are referred to as last dollar programs, meaning they take all the grant assistance that was already out there, and then whatever your unmet need is, they close the gap to zero, just as Emily, as you said, for the tuition costs. And one effect of that is for low-income students, many of them already all of their tuition was being covered. So this new program called Free College did nothing Whereas for higher income students, it may have sent, you know, money their way. And 
And then there's the, the other issue that you raised, which is calling it free college when it doesn't recognize a lot of costs. I would say, I mean, I think this is a very interesting and complicated issue. I think some of the defenders of these programs make two different points. One is, so for example, in Tennessee, where basically the report showed low-income students got no money out of it, nonetheless, the enrollment rates among low-income low students went up. And the explanation that most people, I think, think is right is that calling it free college ca caused a lot of students who assumed they couldn't pay for college to to look seriously at college, discovered they could get tuition costs covered, and they decided to enroll. No new money available to them, but they're in college when they wouldn't have been, and there's value in that. The other thing is, I think this is part of a larger debate about what should be universal and what shouldn't. So for example, I don't think it's a knock on universal free public schooling K-12 that wealthy people can send their kids to school for nothing. In fact, that's part of what it means to have universal free public education. And so if you have universal free college, of course you're going to start paying for some wealthy people to send their kids to college. If you believe in it, it's because you think it's good to have certain social commitments that are for everybody all the time, regardless, to create a situation where everybody has an interest in protecting and expanding those. For example, if it's universal, now you've got a, a broad constituency who might fight to get books included and get some housing costs included. If it's only for low-income students, we've seen in this country, usually upper-income people won't, won't fight for it. And so I, I, I think it's a complicated story, but I do think those are reasonable points for the people defending those new programs, even though the math that is being shown in these reports is right. But I think it depends on what the goal of the program is. Is it access or is it completion? If it's access, then yes, it's meeting that, that goal by creating at least, in some cases, it may be the illusion that you're not going to have to pay anything, you can do this, yes. If it's completion, then there's another piece of it that's, that's missing. I think the access piece is important, and that is a gain and benefit of the program, but like, you know, I saw at a private college that I was a, a part of, you'd have students, you know, come in because tuition looked like it was covered, and then come second year, beginning of third year, they had to leave because they realized that it was no longer affordable for, for them. Yeah, I think that was my question about the enrollment. I, I mean, I agree that to help people understand that there is support out there is great. And clearly that resulted in more enrollment. But if they then can't be successful because sophomore year, the tires go out on their car and they don't have $500 for new tires um, or someone gets sick or a million other things, will these result in more degrees, which I think is what is the goal for everybody, for individuals and for a society. Yeah. I think it's important that, you know, those realities get pointed out. And so while some of the um, folks who run these programs disputed the, the report, I, I don't think it's an indication of getting rid of the program. I think it's a, you know, awareness piece about where the gap may be and how to potentially address that, that gap. So maybe it's a com complete college that takes into account the unmet needs around uh, books and transportation and housing and other things that we know add to the costs um, and stress that students experience around funding, being able to fund and um, their college experience. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that the um, that the second report suggests from the Education Trust is the first dollar instead of last dollar, because there are some programs that if your tuition is covered, can be used for other things. And so if you put in money towards tuition, and then some of those things um, can be used to other, for other related costs, living or even, you know, books and fees, which can really add up. Um one of the things I wanted to just run through quickly is that because I it it was really very interesting to me is that the Education Trust provides eight things that they think true impactful free college programs should include. Um, so there's a lot more information you can look up here, but basically cover living costs, cover fees, um, pay for four years of college, not just two. So that was a big thing they pointed out is it's great to cover more community college, but if someone is looking for four years, you don't want to track them. And if you're low income, you can only get two. Again, bachelor's degree programs um, covers adult and returning students. And that was, I thought was interesting. A lot of these programs are only for people just out of high school. If you're an adult, if you're coming back, if you've tried college and you're coming back, if you're, if you can only go part-time, then these aren't available to you. And I just feel like that's going to be the situation of so many people that we need to have degrees. No GPA requirements, or at least not ones um, above eligibility for federal financial aid. Um, other contingencies, so some, you know, say that you have to stay in the state or work in a certain field or that kind of thing. And then repayment of aid. Some of them convert to loans, which, again, w- would be pro- problematic for a low-income student. So I thought that was a, their, the framework they proposed was interesting. Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, the other thing is that when you look at those programs that have income caps, then you're looking at the participants in those programs being more more diverse. And so the idea of, you know, how is diversity playing into how these free tuition programs are are running and who's actually benefiting from them? Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to steal the final word because we got the uh, the time signal from our authoritarian producer, Molly. Uh, but, it, you know, I think one of the issues that, and again, a lot of these things connect back to how we talk in the public square about these issues is, you know, I think the, the Education Trust is one of the great organizations in the United States doing incredible work fighting for educational equity. I think some of the nervousness in response to the report was a feeling that what's going to get reported is free college programs don't work there bad. And instead of let's improve these, let's invest more, that in the politics that we live in, in the real world, it'll become, you see, this was a waste. This was a terrible idea. Right, right. And with limited funds, let's target them better because if the intended recipient is not actually getting the funds, that's important information. I I tried to have the last word. It didn't work. No, I won't. That's not going to happen. Molly's not authoritarian. She's just a very good handler. She literally is showing us smiley faces and frowny faces, Andrew. So I don't really think it's fair for you to call her authoritarian. Okay, you guys misunderstood. I meant it as a term of praise. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no. (laughs) Sorry, guy. Not happening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so for this week's Bright Spot, we have a great example out of Campus Compact of the Mountain West. I did a short interview with Stephanie Schooley, the executive director there, about their second mission program, which supports student veterans on campuses uh, across that region. And so we'll go right to that interview and learn more about second mission. Stephanie Schooley, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. 
Hi, Emily. So you've been on before. Our listeners should know a little bit of who you are. Um, and you're on for a bright spot. We're talking a lot about non-traditional students, equity in higher education, those kinds of issues on the podcast um, today. And wanted to bring you on to talk about a specific uh, initiative that Campus Compact of the Mountain West has taken on. So let's start with why, why student veterans? You do yep. community engagement. What is, you do the civic mission. What are those, what's, what do student veterans have to do with that? What's the connection? Yeah. So starting a few years ago, we began having conversations with a lot of folks on campuses who were noticing a pretty dramatic rise in students in their classrooms who were either stopping out or dropping out at higher rates than was acceptable at all. And they noticed that in large part, these were student veterans and other military affiliated students who were transitioning to higher ed from active duty. And that was really their intro and back into civilian life, back into community was through higher education. So we started thinking deeply about what role then do higher education institutions, do faculty and staff members on campuses and kind of the structure set up to support returning um, military affiliated students, what responsibility or role do they play in helping to reintegrate these students back into their community? So what we started convening folks into conversations around is, all right, well, obviously there's a need. So is community engagement a strategy for helping to get students onto campuses? They have access to their post 9-11 GI Bill benefits. So there was a big rush to make campuses more attractive to students because there's money involved in those (laughs) GI Bill benefits. Um, But how can we do it in a way that's responsible to the student where we can um, ethically enroll students in college, we can help create systems to retain them and then help them successfully transition back and the agreement was that community engagement could be a powerful strategy from that and that's where a second mission came from. So how long has this program been running? Um, the first iterations of it started with a partnership of, with Points of Light Foundation, actually, in their Veteran Leader Corps in 2014. And then we developed Second Mission over time through, again, those conversations to say, okay, well, this worked, this was not quite right, or seeing some different needs in students. And what ended up being quite interesting that connects with some of the, I think, the conversation of this podcast is a lot of the things that were identified for student veterans and military affiliated students really aligned with other kind of demographics on campus. So in general, student veterans um, tend to have the same demographics as other non-traditional student groups. They tend to be older, they tend to be married, have dependents. Um, There's a whole lot of first generation to college, um, the different demographics around ethnicity and race. So there were a lot of ways in which we were borrowing program models from like LGBTQ safe zone trainings and other trainings that were kind of geared toward different demographics, but that really spoke to the students that we were trying to reach because they fit within some of these multiple identity groups, which was um, interesting and also allowed us to mm-hmm. kind of expand on best practices that had been developed for some of these other student groups. 
So what exactly is Second Mission then today? So what we ended up doing was aligning Second Mission programming with what are called the eight keys for student veteran success. And those were developed through a partnership with the Department of Defense, um, Veterans Affairs, and Department of Education. And essentially, it was a response to some of the predatory recruitment of student veterans by Mm -hmm. some campuses because of the GI Bill benefits. And those campuses were doing a huge disservice to those students, not providing them the support they needed to make that transition into higher education, going from a highly structured military system into a higher ed system that may have structure but is confusing even to those of us that work in higher ed. (laughs) What is a bursar? Nobody knows that really. Um, I know that Alexander Hamilton punched one. That's all I know about bursars. See, that's important. That should be part of our second mission training. Keys to success, punch a burster. um, So what we did was we looked at those eight keys for student veteran success, and it's things that would resonate well, I think, with a lot of community engagement efforts that we work with, which is, you know, setting up a culture of trust on campus, providing intensive professional development and training to faculty and staff on campus, having a designated center or place where certain students or student veterans can convene and feel safe. Um, There are a whole bunch of different strategies outlined in that document. And so we basically created Second Mission to help fulfill those eight keys. So we have um, 12 campuses that have participated or are participating in Second Mission. And we have full-time VISTA members who serve at those campuses to implement those eight keys. And just for example, last year, we had about 3,000 student veterans that were served by our VISTA members. There were four centers, um, so for veteran-serving centers that did not exist before, that now exist on campuses. Um, Hundreds of faculty members that have been trained in a sort of cultural agility, but specific to student veterans and military-affiliated students. So, you know, when you think about the language around second mission, it aligns very closely with a lot of the community engagement language that we use for other programs and what we're trying to see for faculty development, for um, institutionalization of practices. This just happens to be kind of dedicated and focused on one subset. So what's the most important thing you've learned? Like what should others who are interested in this area take away from your experiences? Yeah. One is that there are even more acronyms in military community than there are. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Don't go wading deep into those waters because, um, and in our office, Katie Klein-Hesslink, who's the director of Second Mission and really built the program from the ground up and has a um, kind of a personal mission to make that program succeed. Neither she nor I are veterans. Um, And so it was a steep learning curve in order to learn what the need was, but also to establish some credibility in a community of people that we really ultimately, like that connection between community engagement and veterans, student veterans, wasn't clear (laughs) to a lot of people. So what I've learned is that that relationship development and like the three years that we spent sitting in on meetings with veterans and current military staff and going to Air Force bases and Army bases and all of those things were pretty critical for us to be able to have any credibility in a group of people that um, I think was a little bit skeptical about what role we could play in, in 
creating some positive change on campuses, but it was well worth it. And we've developed a community of practice that was not there before. So veteran serving faculty and staff on campuses, we've been able to convene them in a way that they haven't been before and connected them with their community engagement peers, which has been a pretty powerful way to build the work that we're doing. So it's been, it's been very positive. That's amazing. So where can people find out more? Um, well, there is information on our website, which I will just say is in transition uh, to a new website. But if you go to ccmountainwest.org, there is information about Second Mission on there, and we'll continue to update it. And you can always go on our website and find Katie klein Hesselink's information, and I'm sure she'll be happy that I told everyone out there to call her. <laughs> I can only imagine. She has a font of information. So, yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, Stephanie. We appreciate yeah. you coming on today and sharing your bright spot. Thanks for allowing me to be a bright spot on a Monday morning. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so back by popular demand, last time we did segments, we um, talked a little bit about public problem solvers and some great examples of that happening in the world. We're going to do that in the future, but we're bringing back a segment from past seasons, Pop Culture Corner. We don't want to miss our chance to talk about random pop culture and try to relate it to our work um, or to see if Andrew will actually talk about pop culture or just try to make a book he read pop culture uh so mighty soul do you want to kick us off as your first time doing this segment not really (laughs) mine's a little bit more serious i would say that's andrew's job being serious come on now sorry i think mine is more about the me too movement right now and the um the need for us to uh, listen more intently to those folks who are uh being brave enough to to share their stories i know that uh i'm not the only one in higher ed who's uh has experienced um harassment and things that would be um sort of part of the me too and i want to uh say that you know, many of the changes that we had in Title IX were due to brave and courageous college students, especially women demanding this um, from our Department of Education and from our universities. And so, especially during this time and what's happening currently in the attack on women who are coming forward, that uh, we need to know that, you know, that's important and that movement uh, has an important role in shifting our uh, culture and our community today. Absolutely. That is serious. Also true. Uh, and obviously, uh, I mean, I think it's it's certainly been interesting um, for me to reflect with other men about things that we have been responsible for that we have not thought through at different stages of our lives. Um, and, uh, so I, you know, I, I hope that people are at the very least taking the invitation to be reflective about their own lives in addition to thinking differently about, uh, people around them and yeah, the need to create space for things to be heard that, uh, have not typically been heard. Yeah. I think more, more talking, more listening. I know I have had a number of men ask more questions about my prior experiences and I've shared more than I ever did in the past about 
things that have happened and just the prevalence of this kind of behavior. And I think that has been surprising even to men that I think um, consider themselves to be pretty aware because I don't, for whatever reason, shame or just not wanting to be annoying or whatever the case may be. I know as a woman, I've held back in really even relaying all of all of these incidents that really add up and we've got to change that. I know we've got to talk to our kids. A lot of this stuff, you know, reflecting back on the behavior of high school boys, we talk a lot about what we're going to say to our daughters, but I'm thinking all the time about what I'm saying to my son. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, I assume yours is serious too. So you want to go? Well, uh, <laughs> so it, I will say this: it's serious, but it it is actually fun. I had sort of two, but I'm I'm decide I'm trying to decide which direction to go because they both had a serious angle. So my pop culture corner is uh, a podcast, and. Uh, so the the podcast generally is a great podcast. It's called Code Switch. It's from NPR. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The hosts are uh, Shireen Marisol Maraji and Gene Demby. As the name suggests, it deals with kind of navigating the realities of race and ethnicity in our complicated world. And they recently did an episode, I think they called it School Days, you know, D-A-Z-E. But it's a kind of back-to-school episode, but it focuses on kind of real questions that I think all of them came from listeners, if I remember right. And um, people just trying to navigate difficult situations and wanting some advice about it. And so, you know, one example was a white middle school teacher in a racially diverse neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York. She's a dance teacher, and she wanted to teach um, some traditional dances from South Africa that she had learned a lot about and whatever, but one of the students felt like he didn't want to be learning about this from a white teacher, and she wanted to know how to respond to that in a responsible way. And they ended up talking to some um, experts in South African dance and in culturally responsible teaching and whatever. It was just a really interesting conversation. They had a set of uh, these examples. And one of the things I like about that podcast is they're very interested in, there's just not a lot of shame. There's not a lot of guilt. That's not the approach they take. It's about unraveling these kinds of questions and thinking about how people can communicate effectively, work together, understand each other more deeply, and and have some fun in the world uh, without kind of doing damage to other people. Um, so anyway, I highly recommend it. Code Switch, School Days episode, all their episodes are good. Yeah, they are. Well... Mine is the most serious of all. Just yeah. kidding. I always, I got to bring the lighthearted. Well, I don't know. See, my pop culture interests are not necessarily what I would describe as lighthearted, but American Horror Story started last week. <laughs> I have never seen that. Neither have I. Well, I love it. It is actually uh, a lot about. See, it's it's a sort it's about these horror tropes, but then the true horror is like real life, like things actually happening all the time. That's what I like about so it. So this but, is the light one about the true horror being real life. I just want to check that. Yes, okay. I okay. know, I know. See, this is my my pop culture interests are not exactly um, 
lighthearted. But this one I'm really excited about because they've been teasing this is the eighth season. They've been teasing the whole time that all each season has been a different thing. Many of the same actors and actresses, but a different story. But they've been teasing that these different threads of stories are going to come together. And so this season is Apocalypse. And I do love anything post-apocalyptic. Don't ask me why. I'm sure there's deep psychological things happening there. But I love it. And so it's like post, it's like nuclear winter, but, you know, some people got rescued, uh, mostly rich people. Anyway, so it is starting to bring a lot of these different threads back together in ways that are very interesting. And also, Joan Collins is in it. Oh, wow. Collins! I didn't even know she was still alive. But. <laughs> I was, that, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> well, she is amazing. Joan, if you're listening, we're very sorry. <laughs> So anyway, I do I do recommend it. And you can jump in at any point, but it is scary. My husband won't watch it with me. So Well, I'm very excited that they're starting the a new Charms Charmed series, Charms reboot. So uh once I uh see those, I will have more to contribute uh on that for this. So um, is that witches? Yes, it was the three sisters. And now they're like, right. I think Latina women of color. So I'm really excited to. Was that who was, was that like Alyssa Milano? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, not Drew Barrymore. What was the other one? Anyways, but yeah, Alyssa Milano was in it. I love Charmed. So excited about that. I can't wait to hear more. Mm -hmm. Witches. It is Halloween time of year. That's right. Exactly. We can talk about witches and apocalypse and horror. Uh, on the next episode of Compact <laughs> <Podcast>. <laughs> Zombie culture. <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, we will be back in two weeks with uh, another long-form interview from the field. It's going to be a really exciting one. So look forward to that. And we will see you here next time. As always, send us your ideas, podcast at compact.org, hashtag compactnationpod. Find us on social media, rate us and review us, etc. Okay. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Have a great day. The Compact Nation podcast is produced by Molly Leeper, Communications Manager for Campus Compact. Campus Compact is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and has over a thousand member colleges and universities across the country and beyond. If you want to learn more about Campus Compact, visit us at compact.org. You can send your comments, questions, and show ideas to podcast at compact.org or find us on social media with hashtag compactnationpod.